So the, the scriptures are Christ-shaped. Do you know what that means? We talk about it all the time here, but I'm afraid that this might be one of those topics that's always alluded to and hardly explained, like glory. <laughs> For years, I heard people talking about the glory of God, and I was pretty clueless. I mean, I had some vague conception of what those words meant, but my vague conception was broad enough and imprecise enough that it didn't really help me understand what people actually meant when they spoke about the glory of God. See, sometimes ideas can become so fundamental to the way we communicate that we take less care to explain them. And I'm afraid that might happen when we talk about the scriptures being fulfilled in Christ. We've been walking steadily through Samuel for months now. And we've recently turned a corner. And now, more than ever, it's important that you understand what I mean when I say that the scriptures are Christ-shaped. Because there are few stories in the Old Testament that are as explicitly Christ-shaped as the story of David. The Bible is a collection of books written by a number of authors over centuries. And what's brilliant about the Bible is that all of these authors and all these books are pointed in the same direction. Every single passage of Scripture is pointed in the direction of Jesus, our King. Every single passage of Scripture was written for the ultimate purpose of teaching us that our only hope is in Jesus, the Son of God, who was sent to purchase a people with His body and blood. And I think most people will more or less agree with those statements, but not as many understand them. So what I want to do very briefly is explore how that works, because it's going to become important as we read the story of David. Many of these books were not written merely as the next chapter in the Bible. There wasn't like a publishing calendar posted letting the authors know when the next chapter was due. That's not exactly how it worked. Rather, the books of the Bible were each written to a people for a purpose. To address questions or to explain major events and why they happened or to encourage them to return to faith in God. But once these books were received, it became very clear to the people of God that they were each inspired by the Spirit of God. In other words, while lots of books were circulated among the people of God, it was agreed that these books, the books that we have in the Bible, were perfect. These were the words of God. And so they kept them and preserved them with the highest degree of honor. And eventually they were passed down as a collection united by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the reason I mention this is because it's not enough to say every passage in the Bible is about Jesus. In fact, if that's where you end the conversation, you run the risk of outright confusion. Because you must remember that each book was written to a people for a purpose. Every book in the Bible was written to a people for a purpose. So to understand that book, you have to first ask who those people were, and then ask what that 
purpose was. And then, and only then, after those questions have been answered, you are now prepared to take a step back and to ask broader questions. Questions about how this story fits into the larger story. And that's when you begin to see that this passage is one part of a brilliant effort to prepare a people for the coming king. To prepare a people for Jesus. At that point, you begin to see that all the stories work together to draw attention to our Redeemer. Now, that's a very cool idea. But you might be hesitant to embrace an idea like that because it seems to oversimplify what is obviously a large and complex book. But I want to show you something from the Gospel of Luke. Everybody turn to Luke 24, verse 13 with me. I want to show you something from Luke, which I think is profound and something that I think should teach us how to read every story in the Bible. Luke 24, 13. On that day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, two of his disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? He said, What things? They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of Those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I think it's worth noting that just a few hours ago, Jesus conquered death and purchased a people. Just a few hours ago. All of our hope in the forgiveness of sins and in the inheritance of a forever kingdom was realized. The moment that all the faithful since the fall of Adam had been hoping for at this moment, which is truly the very center of human and all of creation's history, at this culminating moment of the redemption of God's people, Jesus chose to stop 
and to open the scriptures and to patiently walk two newly redeemed brothers step by step through all of the Old Testament and to carefully teach them that all of these writings were anticipating his life and his death and his resurrection. Now that in itself is breathtaking, but that is just one of dozens of passages in the New Testament that boldly and explicitly and unapologetically confess that every word of the Bible is about Jesus. So I'm not overstating things. The apostles were unapologetic in their references and allusions to the Old Testament. The assumption of the New Testament is that we've been told about the coming Christ for thousands of years. We've just not had eyes to see nor ears to hear. So that's the fundamental premise of everything we're going to say from this point forward. Unapologetically, we've been exploring the book of Samuel with an eye to see the coming Christ to understand his ministry and to rejoice in his rescue of his people. But from this point forward, we're going to get even more intentional about tracing the shadow of Jesus. Because few moments in the Old Testament so explicitly foreshadow the life and ministry of Jesus as the life of David. This is one of the brightest moments in the Old Testament. Now, perhaps it's worth clarifying that not all of the Old Testament paints a a portrait of Christ as directly and as clearly as this one. Some guys have made the mistake of attempting to force passages too far to illegitimately declare that they directly foreshadow Jesus. It creates problems. Not all of the stories work this way. It's frankly, kind of hard to get from some of the stranger sections of the law to Christ and his ministry. You have to step back and then maybe one more step back just to see everything. But there are moments in the Old Testament that are crystal clear. The brightest and the most explicit anticipations of the work of Jesus. And this is one of those moments. Now we know that not only because it feels that way, Not only because so much of David's life reminds us of the life of Christ. We know that because Christ himself and the authors of the gospel make it clear. of All the gospels. I want to read you just a few examples. The very first verse of the New Testament reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. A few pages later, and Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! Again, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Again, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David! My daughter is severely pressed by a demon. Again, and behold, there were two blind men sitting in the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And again, the crowds went before him and followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Now that's just a few of the examples in Matthew. And that's just the first book of the New Testament. This stuff is everywhere. So as we read the story of David, you need to be making these connections. You need to be be making the connections that Jesus himself was making about the Old Testament and that the authors of the Gospels made. What I'm saying is that we need to trace the shadow of Jesus in the life of David because that's the point. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 16.14. Before we begin to read, I want to recall together what has just happened. Samuel for some time, Samuel the prophet for some time has been grieving over the rejection of Saul who was the pretender king. Now Saul was given the kingdom of Israel because the people were impatient. They didn't want to wait any longer and they demanded a king, a king just like the nations have. And that's what they were given. Though God worked through Saul, though the Spirit rushed upon him and worked through him to rescue God's people from their enemies, Saul turned away from God. He rejected the atoning work of the priest. He broke the covenant. And that's a huge problem. Because God is the only hope of the people of Israel. The covenant was the only hope of the people of Israel. And outside of that covenant was only wrath. That's where Saul led his people. Guilty and into the wrath of God without the covering of the covenant. But God, in a tremendous display of mercy, rejects his, this pretender king and promised a better man. The true king of Israel was coming, just as Hannah had prophesied, just as Samuel had promised. The true king was coming, and he would free the oppressed and give strength to the weak, and he would crush the wicked. And so they waited, until one day God tells Samuel to stop grieving over Saul, and to get up and to go to a town called Bethlehem, because he had chosen for himself a king among the sons of Jesse. Now, what's interesting here, and this is what we talked about last week, is that David, who was the youngest son of Jesse's eight sons, wasn't even invited to Samuel's shindig. Samuel asks Jesse to bring his sons to a sacrifice. And David, the youngest, the smallest son of Jesse, wasn't even invited. He's still in the fields. Because man judges by outward appearances. But God judges the heart. And God had chosen the youngest, the smallest son of Jesse. So the elders of Bethlehem and David's father and his older brothers in this really awkward moment are forced to stand in anticipation of the arrival of the honored party. Their future king, who at least in the case of Jesse's sons, they had been making fun of probably for his whole life. And when David walks in, we see that he's everything that Samuel and the people didn't expect. David is despised and rejected by men. But 
David is the anointed of God. His heart is like God's heart. And when Samuel pours the oil on David's head to anoint him as the true king of Israel, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, not temporarily like Saul, but permanently from that day forward. And that's where we left off. So let's go ahead and read together. 1614. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Okay, so the first thing to note here is that Saul's rejection is intentionally set in contrast with David's rise to power. Those two things are set right side by side. We just learned, not two sentences ago, that David's been anointed and that the Spirit has rushed upon him and that he walks in the power of that Spirit every single day. And now this, the torment of Saul, that's not accidental. See, the work of God is the only hope for the people of Israel. God's work, God's spirit, God's prophet, God's king. The work of God is the hope of the people of Israel. Without God's work, the people of Israel are condemned to misery and torment. They are crushed by the weight of their own sins. They are subject to the wrath of God. Outside of the work of God, there is no hope. And and this is why this contrast is so powerful. Because from the moment of his anointing, David walks in the power of the Spirit. All that he says, all that he does is blessed by the work of God. But Saul has rejected God. And therefore the Spirit of the Lord has departed from him and he's miserable and tormented. See, just in one sentence, God is teaching his people here at this moment by setting the fruitfulness and hope of young David in contrast to the torment and misery of Saul. Return to me, he's saying. Return to me and find joy and life forevermore. There is only misery and torment without God. And I think there's also something else going on here. And you'll have to think back, because we dealt with this in chapter 12, which was quite a while ago. Was it 12? 14? Not long ago, Saul cursed himself. He said these words, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. That's a curse. He calls a curse upon himself. In a moment of inexcusable foolishness, Saul seeks to murder the faithful son, his son, whose hope in God was the key ingredient in the people's tremendous victory. Rather than rejoice in God and rather than celebrate the faithfulness of his very own son, in a fit of jealousy and foolishness, Saul issues a curse upon himself. May God kill me and do worse if Jonathan doesn't die today. Those are the words of the king and they have power. 
in a moment of self-destructive rebellion, Saul calls upon himself the wrath of God. Well, since then, we haven't really had opportunity to explore how that curse is working itself out against Saul. But we will see it unfold in the coming chapters. There are perhaps no figures in the scriptures as miserable and as tormented and as paranoid as Saul. And this torment and misery leads to paranoia and rage and murder. And now I want to address something here because this has bothered me in the past and it might be bothering you. The text reads, A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And a handful of translations actually read, An evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Okay, so before we ask the broader question, let me clarify that the word used here has a broad range that it could mean evil in some context, but I don't think that's what it means in this context. It could be wrong. The word itself can refer to trouble or misery or harm or bad things or disaster or evil. I think that the reason the ESV chooses harmful rather than evil is because what unfolds is not evil. In fact, it's the right response, not only to Saul's sin, but also to the curse he's called down upon himself. Saul demands, like a fool, he demands that God sends harm to him. And he got what he asked for. Now, Don't hear what I'm not saying. God can and does use evil agents to accomplish his good ends. The kings of Babylon and Assyria are called his servants. Not because they did righteousness, because they were fulfilling his will. So don't let me exclude that category for you, but I I don't think that's what's going on right here. But the real question, I think the bothersome question is this. How could God commission the torment of another? What is a harmful, tormenting spirit doing in his service? The answer, I think, is simple. Wrath. It's like a cuss word of late. But it's in the Bible. God is righteous, and He is holy, and we belong to Him, and all creation belongs to Him. So when we, His belongings, demanded liberation, and when we took what was His, and when we fought Him at every turn, and when we twisted His good works into works of evil, His disposition towards us shifted to wrath. It's the necessary correlative to God's righteousness. A good God does not tolerate wickedness. Not only that, but a good God actively teaches His people that wickedness will only make you miserable, will only end in pain. 
The pain of Saul here is a picture for the people of Israel. Look upon the torment of Saul and recognize there, there is no joy, there is no hope, there is no freedom in wickedness. The misery and torment of Saul is good and just because God has wrath against sin, rightfully so. God sends a harmful spirit who orchestrates misery. And when you see that, you should compare his situation to that of David, who walks in the power and blessing of the Spirit of God. Okay, let's keep reading. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Okay, so what's become clear here is this harmful spirit from God is attacking Saul in such a way as to call him, cause him mental and emotional anguish. He is tormented, not necessarily physically, but mentally. Now, that'll become important later on. But at this point, his advisors, and we're not told why, but his advisors recommend that he find somebody who plays the lyre, which is an instrument common among shepherds. It's sort of like a hybrid between a harp and a guitar, I think. That's what it looks like, anyways. They believe that the music from this instrument will sort of comfort Saul in his distress. And so Saul takes his advisor's counsel and commissions them to find someone who plays well. Let's keep reading. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, to his son, to Saul. Now, I think it's important to note here that the advisor didn't have to go seek a man. They already knew the man. Listen, one of, his young, one of the young men answered. That is, as soon as Saul had commissioned them to seek out a talented musician, one of the young men spoke up right away. David came to mind immediately. And that's telling, I think, because the last we heard about David was that he was young and insignificant. So insignificant that he wasn't handed an invitation not even worth mentioning before the prophet of God who asks about the sons of Jesse. David was the youngest son of eight sons in a relatively insignificant family in a relatively insignificant town. But since that moment, everything has changed. 
Now we're not sure how much time has elapsed, but we do know that David is still young. So it couldn't have been many years. But since that moment, everything's changed. Listen to this guy's words. I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, it it could be that the author of Samuel chose not to mention that David was already a skillful musician, a man of valor, a strong warrior, a prudent speaker, a man of good presence, and a man blessed by God. It could be that he just didn't mention those things before. But I don't think that's the case because surely a son like that would have been invited to meet the prophet. It appears that since we last met him, David's become something greater, something stronger, something better than he was before. Just just a paragraph ago, he was merely a boy. Now he is a mighty warrior, a wise sage, a prophetic poet, a man who walks in the power of God. What changed? The prophet of God anointed the true king of Israel and the spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. That's what changed. Look, the purpose of this story for this people is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the only hope for Israel. The work of God to send a true king and to fill that king with the spirit and to use that king to restore his people and to establish a kingdom. That's the hope of Israel. The future of Israel is contingent upon the movement of the spirit in the work of the true king. And when we saw Saul, in his misery, we were taught in no uncertain terms that there's no hope outside of that kingdom. But if, if the Spirit of God is at work in the true King of Israel, there is life and blessing and strength and wisdom and hope. That's the hope of Israel and that's the purpose of this story. Keep reading. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to his father, saying, Please let him stay in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. When you're rejected, when you're miserable and tormented, 
when your heart is heavy, you should look to the true King of Israel. For He will bring you peace. Amen. Watch how Saul responds. David arrives and he plays his songs and the tormenting spirit departs. And all of a sudden he feels joy again. And all of a sudden he has peace again. And Saul clings to the true king of Israel. He loved him greatly. He gave him a position of honor and he doesn't want him to leave. Because while he was yet cursed and rejected, the true king of Israel cast out the misery and the torment and he replaced it with peace. David arrives full of the spirit. And when David arrives, the harmful spirit departs. Imagine the scene for a moment. Because it's kind of like a portrait of the upside down kingdom of God. Imagine the scene. As a pretender king sits on the throne, though he's got no true power, though he's cursed by God, though he's tormented and miserable. And where in this scene is the true king? The true king of Israel is merely a court attendant. setting aside glory and honor to serve the least of these. Like Christ stooping down to wash feet. On the throne is a pretender who demands the rights and honor and glory of a kingdom which he's already lost. That kingdom belonged to the true king. But where is he? He set aside his rights and patiently serves the troubled. There's so much here. There's so much going on in this story already. And all the time you need to be thinking of Jesus. David was rejected because he was the eighth son of a shepherd. Jesus was rejected because he was the son of a carpenter. David was anointed with oil by the prophet of God and the Spirit rushed upon him. Jesus was anointed with the waters of baptism by the greatest of the prophets. And God spoke from the heavens and the Spirit fell on him like a dove and remained upon him forever and ever. David wandered through the wilderness fighting bears and lions to protect his sheep. Jesus wandered through the wilderness defeating our great enemy who wanders like a lion seeking someone to devour. David walked in the power of the Spirit and a court attendant sought him because he played the lyre well and fought with valor and spoke with wisdom. Christ walked in the fellowship of the Spirit and the nations sought him because he taught with authority and he healed the sick and he opened the eyes of the blind. And he fed the masses. David, his music had power. 
to cast away a harmful spirit and to restore peace among one who was weary and heavy laden. Christ's very words had power over every harmful spirit. And they restore peace among all who are weary and heavy laden. The reason that the story of David exists, the reason it's here in your Bibles, is to teach you what Jesus is like. Not merely so that you could know more things about Jesus. It's there so you'll run to Him in hope. When you're miserable and tormented, when you're afraid, when you're guilty. This morning I woke up early, I was troubled, afraid of things, silly things. (laughs) I realized how much hope I had set in this world. I confessed my sin and I repented and there was peace. Because that's what happens when you bring your burdens to the true King of Israel. Amen? This story is there so that you'll run to the throne of grace. I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. You are not David in this story. There are too many bad Sunday school lessons about this. You are not David, and this is not about your victory over giants or trouble things or whatever people like to do. And you're not Samuel in this story either. This story is not about your faithfulness through trial. You are Saul in this story. If you must be anyone. We are the cursed ones. We are the fools who have placed ourselves in an impossible and hopeless situation because we shook our fists at the heavens and we pursued creation over creator. We are the ones who rejected the God who gave us life and has set us in a good land. That's us. That's you and me. We have earned the wrath of God. So when you read this story, don't scoff at the pretender king who sits on the throne making demands. Because that's you. This story is here to teach you that your hope is the true king of Israel who humbled himself in service. Your hope is in the true king of Israel who has power over that which would torment us, who has power to remove the curse. Your hope is in the true king of Israel to whom belongs all power and glory and honor, but who set it aside To minister to those who are weary and heavy laden. You are Saul in this story. And we look to young David as a picture of our hope in the true king who would serve the least of these. We look to him who casts away that which would trouble us. And who will establish a better kingdom. We look to him who ends suffering through humble service to the wicked and to the broken, who stoops down and washes the feet of the hopeless. 
That's the point. And, and your responsibility, this is the very small and very simple application section. Your responsibility is to recognize the hopelessness of your own rebellion and to see clearly and consistently your turning away from God and rejecting Him. How frequently have you demanded the glory and honor that was rightfully His? And how desperate was your cursed state before God prior to His sending His Son to bring peace to the tormented? The good news for the cursed is that Christ came to bear our curse. The good news for the tormented is that Christ brings a word of peace to the broken. And the good news for pretender kings like you and me is that God sent a true king to establish a forever kingdom. And that all who set aside their claims to the throne and set their hope in the son of David are welcome to enter and enjoy. Amen. Let's celebrate that rescue at the table.